and welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg. And on today's episode, Daniel Turner joins us to talk about the very popular topic of climate change. We're going to delve into some of the science, including whether the data points we often hear from politicians are accurate, how America has become energy independent, and why that's so important from a global perspective. And finally, he's going to answer the question everyone should want an answer to, and that is, is the world really ending in 12 years? Before we get to Daniel, a little information about him. He is the founder and executive director of Power the Future. That is a national nonprofit organization with the mission of offering truth, facts, and research that will enrich the national conversation on energy policy. For nearly 20 years, he has worked in communications and public affairs for several nonprofits and various campaigns. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. It's wonderful to be with you, so thank you for having me on. So I really want to start with that big question. I'm hoping that you can calm any fear that people have out there. Is the world really ending in 12 years? It is amazing that that has become a common talking point. Um, And I wrote an article not too long ago for foxnews.com highlighting the fact that we've been hearing this um, sort of tick-tock of the apocalypse for 30 years. Uh, The UN wrote a report in 1989 saying that we had 10 years left or we were headed for doomsday. And that came and went. And we have heard this repeated over and over again every five, 10 years from the UN. So this latest one, is just another in a series of 30-plus years of predicting the end of time. So I don't know if the world will end in 12 years, but if the U.N. is any indicator, uh, if its past performance is any indicator, then I would think the U.N. is going to be wrong again this time. And something that I think is ironic is, so this notion that the world is ending in 12 years, I find that so many of the different policies and proposals and pieces of legislation that even get put on the table often don't even ask for emissions to be at a certain point till maybe 2040 or even years down the road. So it almost seems like a exactly. disingenuous number in that the same people who are saying that climate change is a real issue and it's ending in 12 years are happy to sign on to legislation that doesn't fully take effect and until years down the road. So isn't there just, is it just politicizing the issue or, or why are we hearing this 12-year time frame right now? Yeah, it's a really great point that you raise. And math has been a challenge for a lot of the climate change uh, uh, prophets of doom. Um, so you're absolutely right. The proposals they're putting forward don't kick in until 2040, 2050, some of them. Um, so yeah, their, their numbers game is off quite a bit. But even on the larger philosophical context, If you look at the Green New Deal, this landmarks uh, legislation that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the congresswoman from New York, has brought to the forefront, the vast majority of the proposal deals with things like health care for all, racial and gender justice, uh, guaranteed income. So you say, well, what do any of those things have to do with climate change? If, If we really do have 12 years left to fix this, as she is often quoted, well, then why are we discussing about guaranteed uh, income for people who are unwilling to work, right? It, it doesn't seem to address the actual problem at hand. 
Well, it sounds like they're wanting to put everything that they can into these pieces of legislation, but it's gone to the point where even Tuesday of this week, um, not just the congresswoman from New York, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but also Senator Bernie Sanders and other congressional leaders announced a resolution saying that we must declare a national emergency if we don't want the world to end in 12 years. I want to talk to you a little bit about the national emergency, but let's play a clip first by Bernie Sanders talking about this. This is a national emergency. This this particular legislation just demands that the Congress vote to understand that climate change is a national emergency. And then we go from there. And where we obviously have got to go is to tell the fossil fuel industry that they cannot continue to make billions and billions of dollars as they lie every single day about the damage they are doing to our climate. Daniel, we just heard that clip when when they talk about a national emergency, and I even think um, part of this resolution is they want this to be a global national emergency. What exactly are they asking for when it comes to the policies and what this would look like? What are they asking us to do so that the world doesn't end in 12 years? That's why it's called uh, the Green New Deal, because it really does play off of the New Deal from uh, um, from FDR. And so the reason why they're elevating it to the national crisis uh, level is because it gives them a really wide berth. It gives them a huge platform to nationalize a lot of industry. And that's why they, we do talk about things like national health care or national jobs program or even a national uh, um, control of, of the energy industry, of oil, of gas, of coal. Um, when, you, when you elevate it to this level, it gives government tremendous power to take over whole swaths of the economy that that it has really no philosophical and constitutional right to do so. The the Green New Deal is really, to be blunt, it's a really red deal. It it is just socialism um, using the environment and climate change as the catalyst to take over the industries and the economies that right now they're prohibited from doing by this thing called constitution. Let's delve into the data just a little bit on this. I think as a whole, there are a lot of data points that are put out there. I think it's very easy to skew data for your own perspective. But in the work that you're doing at Power the Future and the science that you see, what do you make of climate change and whether or not we know if it's man-made, whether or not we know um, what we ought to do to help where, where are you on the science, and what do you think are the important facts that we should take from, from the science that is out there? From the year 1900 to now, there is no doubt that the oceans uh, are about seven inches higher, and the world is about one degree, a little bit less, 0.8 degrees warmer from the, from the uh, temperatures and from the ocean levels that we saw uh, from the, at the year 1900. Whether or not that is caused by man I think is a fascinating question, and I think that would be something worth discussing. But we don't allow ourselves to have that conversation. It immediately jumps into this is caused by mankind. The reason why I think it, it, it would be an interesting conversation to have without a lot of passion and a lot of politics is because if there are things mankind is doing to contribute to it, then there are things we can do to reduce it. But that is the real debate, and there isn't a lot of evidence to determine that. Um, we know that the, the world has, the planet has been changing and climate has been changing for hundreds of thousands and millions of years. Uh, that there are uh, trees, uh, samples in Greenland. That there are shells and fossil fuels of fish life uh, in the sands of Saudi Arabia. And so we know that the planet has constantly gone through change. 
we're talking about 150, 130 years over 4.5 billion, and and yet the answer always seems to be socialism, state-run industry, higher taxes, and and I think that's where the green movement loses a lot of people because they dip, they jump right from science into socialist policies. And do you think that it's proven that when the earth is getting warmer. So you, you talk about what we do know um, based on you know temperature changes and sea level changes. Do we know that the Earth and the world getting warmer is necessarily a bad thing? Is that always lead to something disastrous? You know that's and that's another great point. That what is going to happen in twelve years? Um, the scientists themselves who wrote this UN report in December of last year. Um, this is what started the whole, we have 12 years, left to fix, 12 years left to fix this. They did say that within 12 years, if we continue at this rate, temperatures will reach this level and oceans would reach this level. They never said what the results of that would be. Um, obviously, higher sea levels could be dangerous for low-lying countries. But again, 30 years ago, the UN told us the Maldives would be underwater. The Maldives, right? Uh, Kate and Will had their honeymoon there after the famous royal wedding. We all woke up at, <laughs> at least I woke up at 4.30 to watch, right? 30 years ago, they said it would be underwater today. So I take their comments on 12 years with a grain of salt the size of the Maldives because they have been significantly off. So I don't know if a warmer planet is a worse thing. The planet is definitely greener than it was 100 years ago because carbon dioxide does feed trees and we do have a greener planet than we did 100 years ago. So these are all interesting things to debate and discuss, but again, we go straight from this into the anger of politics and Trump and partisan policies, and, and that's where we'll never come to a real conversation about climate change and about our role in, res and, and in responding to it. And, of course, within the, the Green New Deal, you, you talked about the areas that have nothing to do with climate change, uh, just the social wel welfare programs that are embedded within that type of or in that deal itself. But, of course, there are things directly related to the industry in this country, oil and gas and coal industries, anything fossil fuel related. Under the Trump administration, a lot of environmental regulations have been rolled back that were enacted underneath um, President Obama. So when this discussion comes up, what could some of these policies potentially mean to, to business and industry within the United States? Yeah, if this were enacted as a real piece of legislation, um, it would be disastrous clearly for uh, the energy industry that I uh, am supporting with Power the Future, but really all of the economy, because everything in our economy is undergirded by um, low energy costs um, and by the energy industry. Uh, just case in point, um, one of the more famous AOC Instagram videos was in January of this year. Uh, she was sitting on her kitchen floor. She was cutting up mangoes and kiwis and avocados, and she was having a Q&A with her audience. And, and at no point in her mind did she realize that she's cutting up exotic fruit in New York during a polar vortex. And this is only possible because of the energy industry, right? She could buy those fruits and vegetables in New York when it was negative 10 degrees because they were grown thousands of miles away and harvested and manufactured or not manufactured, harvested and, and, and uh, shipped to her local grocery store at a cost that she could afford. And that's, that's amazing. I mean, that's just the power of the economy. That's the power of capitalism. But that seems to kind of elude 
someone like AOC. And so when we say we're just going to get rid of fossil fuels, well, what does that mean? There is no proven technology yet in the green space that we can maintain the quality of life we have now if we switch to green, green technology. It doesn't exist. So who would suffer if we made this rapid, precipitous change to green technology? Poor people, sick people, people in hospitals, elderly people. Every time the electric grid falters, and you see this, we see this every year, old people who die because their ACs went out and no one was there to check on them, people who freeze to death in the winter. That's because of a, of a faulty electric grid or because of uh, lack of, of, of energy. That would happen worldwide, nationwide, if this were enacted as a policy. And, and the very people who they claim to care about, the poor, the sick, women, children, etc., they would be the first casualties of the Green New Deal. And one of the things that I think is so ironic about um, this conversation when it comes to wanting to have cleaner energy sources, which I support as well, I know you support as well, but where we're seeing so much happen is really through innovation. And in a recent op-ed that you wrote for foxnews.com, it's entitled, 2020 Democrats Want to Turn Our Energy Independence into Submission, you did talk about that the last two years have been banner years for American energy, whether that is the shale revolution when it comes to fracking. I mean, where has the United States really come uh, or how have they developed in the past two years when it comes to cleaner energy and therefore less dependence on foreign oil? Yeah, you know what's fascinating is I'm not quite old enough to remember. I'm only I'm 44, but so if I were about six years older, I would remember Jimmy Carter talking about peak oil and how we would be out of oil in America by the year 2000. And we just keep discovering more and more of it. And because of the ingenious uh, of men and women in, in this country um, and the entrepreneurship that they have, we're discovering it. We're, we're bringing it to the, to the market uh, cleaner, more efficiently, safer. Um, we are producing more oil and gas now than ever before in the history of our nation. And we lowered our emissions, uh, which was the goal of the Paris Climate Accords, which Donald Trump pulled us out of when he got into office. You would think these would be things that we would celebrate, right? Celebrate this. And, and like you said, and I agree with you 100%, I do support green energy technology. I don't support the subsidies of them necessarily, but I support the technology and where they're going. But, but they are not here yet. But, but what is here is a reliable fossil fuel industry. And if you are Senator Sanders or Senator Warren and you become president, with the mission, I am going to put to rest the fossil fuel industry. How do you want to negotiate with a Vladimir Putin, right, when he is now the world leader in liquid natural gas and not America? How do you want to deal with Iran when their 3.5 million barrels of oil um, really impacts our economy, whereas right now it doesn't, right? We, why, would you sub, why would you give up any leverage, any position of strength over these despots, whether it's Venezuela, Iran, Russia, why would you surrender that position of strength and power in the name of a fake green agenda? And so uh, you can hear the frustration in my voice. There's so much contradiction in their philosophy that it's kind of hard to keep track of what they believe every day. Exactly. And I think the national security aspect is so important. Of course, there were in, in years past, there are these um, accurate claims in many ways that America was beholden to uh, Middle East oil. Um, I don't think all the accusations exactly. were, were, were accurate, but yet there, there was truth to that. We were beholden to them because we needed the oil to, to be energy independent now. 
from a national security perspective, of course, is immense. But I also think there's this other side to it, which you mentioned earlier. What does this mean to protecting the poor, to even maybe respecting women's rights in some of these countries where we don't rely on their oil? So we're not, therefore, just by buying, um, buying their oil, maybe saying we're okay with how you treat women in that country. So do you even think from a human rights perspective um, – us having this energy independence allows us to speak about human rights in a different way. It's such a beautiful point you raise, and I'm so glad you do, because where we have the greatest amount of human rights, where we have rights for women, rights for children, rights for gays and lesbians, right, where we have this is where there is a robust and free economy, and that depends upon uh, an energy industry that allows people to start business. And some of the third world nations, the very first business that women will do is in some type of crafts or weaving, et cetera, and they need electricity to do that. And this is how you begin to sustain yourself and your children and your family. Um, no one is freer than the people who have access to, to reliable, inexpensive energy. And so if you do want to push women's rights as a, as a global initiative and rights of other minority groups, you would support a robust and thriving economy. How are the women doing in Venezuela right now? Right, and the women and the children in that country, and and they have more oil than anyone else in the world. They have more proven oil than every other nation. But because of something like a Green New Deal, which was forced upon them by Chavez and then by Maduro, they literally are out of oil as a nation. Right, and and what about the the dignity of those women and those children who are literally eating zoo animals, as reports have come through, and eating household pets because they are starving to death. There is no dignity in that, and that is what will happen when a Green New Deal is forced upon us. And, and, and again, this is where I throw my hands up in frustration that Bernie and Elizabeth Warren and AOC don't see this connection. So when we think about what our energy policy should be, obviously um, you're making the case for why it shouldn't be in the direction of the Green New Deal. What does good energy policy look like? Is that what we're currently experiencing and what are some of those policies? Was it just rolling back regulation or are there other things that you think um, that President Trump should do or members in Congress should do to continue to make our energy policies as good as they can be so that we can continue to have innovation in the industry? In, energy industry. Yeah, and, and we clearly want the energy industry to be good stewards of resources and to be good stewards of the earth and, and water and land and air. Um, but no one is a better steward of, of, of the environment than the men and women who live in that environment. So I, I talk to coal miners in West Virginia who, who get very angry when someone from D.C. or San Francisco or New York says that coal is polluting and is bad for the environment. Because they will say, well, this is my environment, right? And I live here, and I have a well, and I raise my kids, and we grow food in the backyard, and we drink the water. And, and I am a better steward of the land because it's my land. And, and I see that with people who work in fracking all throughout Texas and New Mexico and, and coal miners in Alaska. And so the best energy policy is really what President Trump has pursued which is just let the industry thrive. Um, uh, he didn't discover a magic wand to use to quote Obama, right? We didn't discover any new oil reserves in this country. We just let the economy work itself. And of course, with an eye on it, with an eye for stewardship, with an eye for responsibility, but understanding that this is what um, the American, this is the American dream, right? This is what the American economy does best. It does thrive when it is unfettered and unsackled and 
The Obama administration punished an awful lot of coal miners. 88,000 of them lost their jobs um, when he targeted them with his EPA. And, and no one ever goes back and asks those men and women whose jobs were lost, hey, is your water cleaner, right? Is your air cleaner, are things better for you? Um, they seem to have been the forgotten people, the, uh, the, the, the collateral damage of a, of a foolish war on coal. So thinking about people across this country, one of the things I've asked myself is I've heard so many of the Democratic primary candidates say on stage during a debate that climate change was their number one um, issue, that that's what they would want to focus on most if they were elected to president. Obviously, they're speaking to a primary right now and not to a general public, but when the public is polled, it's usually focused on the economy and healthcare and immigration. But how much is, is that message? And I think what I would call in many ways fear tactics in relation to this. How much of, of that is resonating with the American public? I mean, are, are Americans fearful that the world may end in just over a decade? It, it, it's amazing the difference between a primary voter and, and the general election voter. Um, the, the exit polling I saw from the 2018 midterms was that climate change and environmental issues weren't even a top 10 uh, issue. And in 2016, it wasn't even a top 20 issue. And so you're absolutely right that these are primary voters and they do have a, a more uh, heightened awareness for especially niche issues. But I think for your average American, they, of course, want clean air and clean water. President Trump this week, early, uh, earlier this week, rolled out some of the, 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 the environmental record that he's, and his administration is proud of. Um, so voters want that, but they really just want a job, and they want, they want freedom, and they want to be left alone, and they want the ability to, to sustain their family and, and, and not incur tremendous debt. And so as much as the, the, the Democrat Party is trying and pushing Climate change is just not an issue that resonates with Americans, and probably because even when it comes to the, the, the messaging of it and the um, scare tactics, like we have 12 years left to live, it really does jump the shark. Americans are not dumb, and, and no American believes that sincerely and says, oh, boy, we have 12 years left to live. I better vote. Otherwise, <laughs> otherwise there's going to be no Christmas in, in 2030. Um, Americans just don't believe their scare tactics. So on that note, I know that so in your role as founder and president of Power of the Future, I'm sure you get plenty of Twitter trolls. You get plenty of hate talking about this issue. It oh, seems sure. that the issue of climate change, it's either you agree and you think we go full force towards Green New Deal or you're on the other side and you hate the environment altogether. What have you found to talk to those people out there that you just mentioned? What is the good way to discuss the fact that you – when you think about innovation and with careful, with a careful, careful eye making sure, or letting industry see what they can do and innovate. And that's where we actually have progress. What's the best way to talk about that? I think it's so easy for people to be afraid to speak up if they question the science, uh, so-called science that's being out there about climate change or so fearful about speaking up because then the attack is, well, you don't care at all. So what have you found just within your job and, and speaking about this in the media? What has been your tactic and in, in your messaging? I think the industry has done a terrible job of promoting the benefits of, of, of their products. And so one of the things that I have found helpful is just pointing out how often we use 
fossil fuels. And it's not just the gas you put in your car, but anyone who's ever been in, in a hospital and maybe had surgery, just look around from, from the IV tubes to the needles, uh, all, all forged with or made from fossil fuels. So many medicines and fertilizers and laundry detergent and, and soaps and lotions. And I mean, I could go on for hours because the list is tremendous. Biking, you know, they, we have National Bike to Work Day all the time. And in D.C., everyone prides themselves on biking for work. That's great. But your carbon fiber bike comes from a petrochemical, as does the rubber on the tires, as does the seat, as does the paint. Uh, so your your bike is maybe quote-unquote green, but it comes from petrochemicals. And again, this is something to celebrate and say, holy cow, there's this sludge at the bottom of the earth which is regenerating itself all the time, and we extract it and we've turned it into hundreds of thousands of products that make our life better. And if you hate fossil fuels and you think they are bad, I just encourage you to go to some of the missionary countries that I've been to and live where there are no fossil fuels. Go to the South Sudan, right? Go to parts of Bangladesh or, or rural parts of India. They don't have fossil fuels there and ask them what their quality of life is like. And so I, I, I totally agree with your premise um, that there are a lot of t Twitter trolls who will say nasty things but I just remind them that they are using a smartphone, which is a petrochemical, and they're using the Internet, which is run on natural gas and coal, to tell me that I, I hate the environment. Well, you know, until you start riding a llama to work, maybe you should just shut your mouth or, or thank a fossil fuel worker who's making your commute possible. Facts are tricky things, aren't they, Daniel? <laughs> um, well, thank you, yeah, thank you so much for spending time with us today. I think it's really helpful for us, first of all, to just discredit the, the fear tactics that are out there with some science and some reason. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me on. Always a, always a pleasure to talk to you, Beverly. And thank you all for joining us. If you have more interest in the topic we discussed, you can follow Daniel Turner on Twitter. You can see some of his Twitter trolls. You can find him at Daniel Turner PTF or also check out Power the Future's work at PowerTheFuture.com. Last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. It, it does help. Also, we'd love it if you would share this episode and let your friends know where they can find more She Thinks episodes. From all of us here at the Independent Women's Forum, Thanks for listening.